Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, hello, hello. This is Recommended Reading with Food Book Fair. Food Book Fair is an annual food media festival, and we get to bring that festival to life by having our wonderful radio show on Heritage Radio Network, Recommended Reading, which is what you're tuning into right now. Um, And we are thrilled to be joined in the studio today by Julie Skelfo, a celebrated journalist and author. Um, who I got to know in Fire Island, one of my favorite places, which hopefully we'll get to talk about a little bit. And just need before we get started with Julie, wanted to give a quick shout out to my work wife and co-host and co-director of Food Book Fair, Kim. She is on a little bit of a journey right now. She's not with us, but we're thinking about her and um, can't wait to hear what she's been reading, watching, and listening to when she gets back. So, Kim, we miss you and we'll see you soon. Thanks, David. I know you miss Kim, too. Um, So, since Kim's not here, but Julie is, we are definitely going to talk about what we're reading, watching, or listening to. And I know Julie's done her homework, which we really, really appreciate. And I did too, a little bit. So I will first welcome Julie to the show. Again, this is Julie Scalfo, journalist and author. Welcome. Thank you, Amanda. I'm delighted to be here. This is so much fun. I love the music of your uh, opening. I love coming through Roberta's and getting to smell all the delicious smells. So I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Really our pleasure. And that music is by Ryan Little, and we love all of his mixes. So if you haven't checked them out, definitely they're on SoundCloud. So it's uh, by Ryan Little. Thanks for noticing. Um, so as a writer and a journalist, I'm sure you read a lot. <laughs> you know, I feel like I never read enough. My nightstand has stacks of books. My office has stacks of books on the floor. Every surface is covered in books, and I feel like I never have enough time. So, uh, you know, all of the social media that have links to articles that I think are important, I feel like I, I just can never read everything I want to. But, yeah, I read I read quite a bit, I guess. <laughs> so is there anything in particular you've been re- – and it, it could be also something you've been watching, something you've been listening to, another podcast or music that's inspirational well, to you. What well, What's I mean, in your rotation right now? Th- well, there's a lot of things – that are interesting that have just come out. You know, Shondaland.com just launched. It's a very interesting website. Shonda Rhimes, who's the creator of a lot of television shows, has decided to create this new environment. And her um, description of what she wants there is space with lots of articles and news, but no um, pointless beauty tips and also no fear-mongering. And I think that's sort of a fascinating idea. So I'm interested in checking that out. I just finished up reading Eve's Hollywood, Eve Babbitt's book which was fun. I've been 
poking through a um, Trinidad and Tobago cookbook because oh, wow. I've been doing research and I, I wanted a really good recipe for this black cake that is really popular in Trinidad during the holidays. It's a dessert? It's, or a, de- it's a dessert. A it's got a lot of okay. dried fruit in it. And um, I've heard, you know, every woman I know from the Caribbean makes her own and has her own recipe, but I wanted to try and find as definitive a recipe as I could. So a friend from Ganada loaned me this book. So I've been looking through that. Um, I've been reading this catalog of items from the women's suffrage movement. I just, uh, through my book, The Women Who Made New York, I was in contact with this woman who has the largest collection of items from the United States. And it's fascinating to sort of see all of the different slogans that were used, the pins, the buttons, the stickers. Um, I mean, that, she has the actual yes, she's physical a, artifacts. Wow. Yes, she loans them to museums and different things. And, you know, so we'll talk about maybe collaborating in some way down the line, but it's been so cool to check these things out. And also it's amazing to me. I mean, the thing that I only recently discovered that I love about history is how much today has in common with uh, a century ago. Like you think we've made all this progress and you like to think that we're so civilized, but in reality, you know, a lot of the issues that we deal with now are just the same things over and over and over again. I was just thinking that probably many of the things that you're seeing ring true today in her collection and slogans or you know, the sentiments. Well, just all the different approaches to try and get um, men to see the (laughs) logic in treating women like actual human beings, you know? So it's really, you know, there are economic arguments, there's moral arguments, there's the, you know, um, patriotic arguments. It's it's fascinating. Um, And I can't wait to start Simeon Marsalis's As Lies to Grin. I I met Simeon um, when he had just sent in his manuscript and the book wasn't out yet. So I was at the Brooklyn Book fest this past weekend yeah, and I saw I it there. I was like, out. Yeah, I can't wait to read that. So that's I guess what I'm reading. And what I'm listening Are, to, I just yeah. heard this great um, news program on NPR the other day, One A, and it was amazing. It's hosted by um, someone named Joshua Johnson. And Brene Brown was a guest on one, and, and his questions were just so thoughtful. And, you know, I appreciate programs like this where you get to listen and hear authors and thinkers and researchers sort of talk about ideas in depth. I'm, right. I'm really over the soundbite. Okay. I don't know that I ever loved the soundbite, but I definitely love getting to hear more details. So 1A. And 1A. where does the name, what's the name Good about. question. I don't even know. I need I need to check okay. it out, but I don't even know. It's on NPR. Great. It's on NPR. It's in the middle of the day. I love the podcast Snap Judgment, Glenn Washington's storytelling podcast. Have you ever heard that? I've heard it once or twice. So yes. good. Okay. And I've met Glenn, and he's amazing and fun. But his the stories just are always gripping, and they're fun, you know. So I've that's what I add that to, to my queue. Right. Okay, wow. Well, you've you've given us a lot. We uh, you did your homework and then some. And everyone, if you are a fan of any of the books or shows or websites that Julie mentioned, definitely comment on our Instagram post or you know tweet at Julie Scalfo. I know she's very active on Twitter. Let her know what your uh, what your thoughts are and if you also enjoy those things. I feel like a Twitter. Um, I don't know schizophrenic. I mean, I go through periods where I'm on it constantly and then I com- I'm completely off of it. I mean I find it really useful for catching up with um, what's being discussed right now, but I don't usually care what's being discussed right now. Like I don't find that it has enormous importance for um, anything other than learning about immediate substantive governmental activity or positions. You know, I mean I, I worked in news, I covered 
breaking news for many years. And there are things that you need to know imminently, like the storm is coming and you've right. got to take shelter. But there's a lot of things that actually, you know, you don't have to know immediately. And just because everybody's talking about it right now doesn't mean you have to know right now. The, the book is still as good in six months or the film or whatever, you know. So, I mean, I, I like to stay up on the latest, but sort of the goal of being first or having the latest to me is kind of pointless. I don't know. That's not, that's not what's most important to me. So I, I don't prioritize that, I guess. Interesting. I've, I've loved following you. And um, anything that you draw attention to, I, I feel like I at least need to open it and, and <laughs> glance at it. And, and it's, a, you know, varied subjects, a lot of news, but also um, entertainment, you know, in some way or other, you know, other forms of media and a lot of, you know, things about New York as well, which we are going to get into talking about That's your so- new book, The Women Who Made New York, and everything that was amazing about it to me and hopefully to others. That's so kind of you to say. Thank you. <laughs> I'm a little embarrassed, but, oh, but I appreciate the be, feedback. I mean, be. you know, what I... What Facebook is good for, in my mind, has always been sharing news or information or art or beauty mm-hmm. that I find inspiring. Right. And so it's a, it's a way to share that information. So, you know, prior to social media, um, as a journalist, when I was working for a magazine or a newspaper, if I found something interesting, if I read a report with some new nugget of data or new way of looking at an old problem, or I ran into an artist or a creator who was doing something I thought was amazing, either I would write a story or I would give it to one of my colleagues and say, you should write about this. Right. Um, now, because I'm not on staff anywhere, I generate I can't help but generate all that content, so I I use it on my social media. But it's an interesting time, right? Because sometimes, you know, people will write me on Facebook and be like, I just love your posts, and, you know, it's incredible. You should edit a magazine, and I think you're (laughs) my favorite news source. And I'm like, well, you know, I do do this professionally. This is what I've done my whole career. I just don't get paid for it now. That's all that's changed, I guess. Right. I think that's pretty apparent. Yeah. Yeah. That I don't get paid? Oh, no, I tried to wear clean clothes (laughs) today. I don't know what you mean, Amanda. Not at all. I think it's very apparent that you've had extensive training in media and aggregating what might be important for us to look at. So that's why I like turning to your feed. Well, I hate junk. I hate having my time wasted. I mean, there's nothing I personally find more infuriating (laughs) than clicking on a headline and being brought to a story that either A, is not the right story, or B, is garbage. And it's this interesting thing because there are a lot of writers and commentators who I have respect for, and I'll see them sort of, you know, take down another post. And then you go to the post or the article and you realize it's it's not a reputable source to begin with. You know, it's nothing more than sort of a, a hollow essay. It's not really backed up by any research or information. And, you know, in the olden days, if if there was a crazy person in Times Square who was giving you their mimeographed, you know, um, treatise on what the United States government is doing wrong, you wouldn't necessarily pay attention. So what's really terrific about social media and the internet is that anybody can have a platform and a voice, but what's really bad about it is that anybody can have a platform and a voice. So there's so much junk and garbage. And I think it clouds our senses. We're overwhelmed. We're just inundated with all of this stuff and headlines and things. There's too many choices. So I find it hard to curate for myself and limit things, but but I I don't find it hard to tell the junk from the quality stuff. I don't know. 
It's an art form, I think, doing that. Well, it's, no, I don't think so. Actually, I don't think it's an art form. I think it's just practice and skill right. set. I mean, my, you know, one of my current things I like to post on social media yeah. about is I really think everybody in this country, every student in this country should have media literacy training. You know, you, you, you learn about how uh, audio media work, how television works, how photographs work. And, you know, if, if you take your kid behind the scenes at, for example, a TV taping, as, as people in New York City are lucky enough to do, they understand that what you see on TV isn't real. But the vast majority of people in the United States don't understand that. So we have a society, you know, that has all these beauty expectations that are based on this completely unnatural system of producing images, you know, in which women are painted, airbrushed, you know, have a staff of tw 12 people. You know, we all have friends who are in the creative industries who go to these photo shoots and there's 10, 12, 20 people making sure that every wisp of hair on the model's, you know, head is flying in exactly the right direction. But it's just create all this warped sense of what reality is. So I think we all have to do a better job of, of learning and teaching ourselves and teaching our kids how to, how to be judgmental about, you know, what is good and what is junk. Is that, is that too opinionated? <laughs> no, it's a great call to action. But speaking of, of reality, I did have a chance to, I'll just segue a little bit and, and talk about one amazing thing that I watched over the past couple days, um, which was a documentary called The Bungalows of the Rockaways. And apparently there were so many, at one point, thousands of bungalows located in the Rockaways, and now they're down to about 300 or 400. Um, so a couple of women who, you know, we are going to definitely talk about the women of New York down the road, but on our, on, down the road on our show, um, it was so fascinating to me to learn about the different groups that settled in the Rockaways and also the concept of what a bungalow was. It actually was taken, it was an idea that originated in India, in Bangladesh, actually, and then made its way via um, English settlers that came, then came to, eventually came to Boston. And then it was designed to be a prefabricated house, essentially. Um, and it was, you know, relatively inexpensive. And it was something that lower middle class or middle class residents of New York City used to escape to the beach start you know starting very early in the in the turn of the century um, and so they were kind of in a way they said they were you know recreating their life in the city but out in the Rockaways by being so close together and in such small quarters but still because they were at the beach it felt different and they loved being out there. Well, everything is better by the beach, totally. right? We can, yes. You know, if you don't agree with that, I don't. I can't. <laughs> no, I'm just um, that's interesting. And are women sort of trying to revive that? Is that the women who made the film? It was really a, a, just a study about what, why, and who came. Like why people came to the Rockaways, who did, what happened there, and then talking about really the real estate development that contributed to a lot of them becoming demolished. You know, that's 
one of the biggest questions of our time in New York City. You know, uh, Jeremiah's Vanishing New York book is just out. He's done such a wonderful job of sort of cataloging all of the things that keep getting lost as gentrification keeps taking over. You know, I, I live in Brooklyn and um, have been close to and live in a neighborhood that um, was a real old school neighborhood with a lot of ties to the Brooklyn waterfront. And just in my short time there, which is more than a decade, you know, I've, I've watched the gentrification really change the character of who lives there, the way businesses are run, what kinds of businesses can afford to exist there. And it's a really heartbreaking thing when you start to lose the mom and pop shops and the bodegas. It's, it's the reason I say it's complicated though, is because some of that gentrification benefits the old school families who own the property. So, you know, I was upset once when a local pizza place was going out of business because a Dunkin' Donuts had showed up and offered them, you know, a lot of rent. And I learned this because I went there before they were closed to say, I'm so sad that you were going. And um, the woman behind the counter, she goes, are you kidding me? My father's been slinging pizzas for 70 years. You know, they came in and offered us 10 grand a month. We can't make that much money selling pizzas. So for them, it was this really sort of wonderful opportunity to um, get financial security and reap this investment they had of their family being in this location for like a century. But at the same time, I very selfishly, like, I don't want Dunkin' Donuts. I wanted like my mom and pop pizza place. So, you know, part of part of what I'm doing in my new book project is celebrating a real authentic old school New York City institution. Oh, you segued perfectly for me. We didn't I didn't even need to think of something clever to say. So, yeah, I think you're referring to the Sahadi's book, which you are working on. And we had the pleasure of having Christine Sahadi Whalen on our show a couple of episodes ago. So definitely check that out. And talking to her about what Sahadis means to her growing up in the Sahadis family, what it means, you know, to be what Sahadis means to Brooklyn and how she's bringing it, you know, to the into the future and how she's innovating to make Sahadis available to people, not just, you know, in Brooklyn or New York. So tell us a little bit about how the book project came about and what we can hope to see. Well, like anybody who loves food, you know, the first time I went into Sahadi's, I was like, oh, my God, I did, you know, how, <laughs> how come I didn't know about this place? I mean, right. it's uh, one of the it, it is actually the oldest specialty food store in New York City. Much to my surprise, it's older than Russ and Daughters. It's older than Balducci's. It's older than Zabar's. Um, you name it. And um, it is owned by the same family who started it in the late 1800s. And it's been on Atlantic Avenue for about 70 years, and I've been shopping there not that long, um, but um, I've been shopping there long enough that I had uh, had the pleasure of getting to know Charlie Sahadi, who's sort of the patriarch, and Charlie is sort of a Lebanese Jack Benny. You know, he's always got all these one-liners. He greets all of his customers with a hug. He's genuinely interested in how you're doing. He's, he's like the mayor of Brooklyn, basically. And um, a couple years ago, around the holidays, I was in when he was put putting books out, um, some cookbooks on, I think, like Turkish cookies or something else. And I said, Charlie, where's the Sahadi's cookbook? That's what I want. I don't, I don't want to know about Turkish cookies. He goes, well, we don't have one. I was like, are you kidding me? You know, we want that book, right? 
you know, if you don't have that book, I'll write that book. He said, well, talk to my daughter, Christine. So um, I thought about it and I, I talked to Christine and she said, you know, it's very interesting because over the years, a couple of people have asked us if we would do a cookbook with them and it was never the right time, but I'm beginning to feel like it is. My father's getting older. We're sort of having to think about um, the longevity of, of this specialty food store. Um, let, let me think about it. So she thought about it. She called me. She said, all right, I decided let's do this. And I thought about it. I was like, I'm not so sure. (laughs) It's a lot of work (laughs) because they, they had never really collected all of their archives of, um, you know, recipes and store information and everything. I mean, the recipes actually were in pretty, pretty organized shape, but you know, they're very busy, hardworking family owned business. So, um, Charlie and his brother are both there every day. Charlie's wife, Audrey, has been doing the bookkeeping there for 30 years. Christine and her brother, Ron, do the day-to-day. Um, and unbeknownst to me, they have this huge factory in Sunset Park where they um, do their collect their importing. They have a massive wholesale business that sends goods to all over the United States. They have this massive nut roasting machine so that they control not only which nuts they bring into the country, but they roast them. They store them a certain way. Um, And so they work like six days a week like dogs. You know, they really work hard. Um, And so um, finally I was like, you know what, I have to do this because if if I don't, the world won't have this. And they they have such a sort of classic and important American story. I mean, they really embody the American dream and the immigrant success story because uh, Charlie Sahadi's father, Wade, um, came here as a teenager to join his uncle who had opened Sahadi's actually in Manhattan first in Little Syria, which a lot of people don't know. And so Wade went to work for him, eventually broke off his own place and opened in Brooklyn. And it was a terrible tragedy. He, he died pretty young when Charlie was only 23. And so overnight, Charlie became patriarch of this um, family business that supported not only his family here, but some family back in Lebanon. And over the years, he really built it up. And so his brother, Bob, helps him. Um, He has another brother who is deceased, but um, Richie was actually an incredible foodie and very adventurous, you know, in the 70s when people still weren't, uh, you know, Italian food was considered exotic. Richie was trying all kinds of things and encouraging them to go beyond Middle Eastern food to carry other specialty ingredients. And he and Christine, who was his niece, you know, she has this amazing palate, just a natural palate that's so precise. And so she went to culinary school for a bit and also studied business. And so as she came into the business and began running things, she's the one who really had the vision of starting to sell prepared foods. And so they have this deli there that if you live in Brooklyn, you basically eat there at least once a week or you bring the stuff home. So um, I have been talking to her for quite some time about how to sort of uh, maybe polish the the brand image a little bit. I mean, there was nothing wrong with it, but it's a real authentic mom and pop store. So it didn't really have the name recognition outside of New York. There's no celebrity chef. They never did a reality show, thank God. You know, they're, they're, it's a real mom and pop place. So the question was, how do we strike that, you know, perfect balance, that elegant balance of um, maintaining the authenticity and the integrity of the place, but also figuring out how to make it a little more well-known in the popular culture. So we've been working on that. Yeah. So it's it sounds as if the book is going to include recipes, but also history and um, any, you know, old 
materials from Sahadis that you guys can get your hands on. So it'll be kind of the story behind it, but also like how you can bring Sahadis into your kitchen. Well, you know, the history of Sahadis really sort of um, mimics, but in fact led so much of the growing food culture in New York City because uh, as, you know, whatever the New York Times sort of discovered, um, whatever ingredient they considered of the moment, whether it was in the 80s, the 90s, or last week, you know, they've been covering, they've been carrying usually since they opened. And so because they've had these long relationships with farms in the Middle East, and they know the purveyors and the actual farmers who are growing these things, they've been able to sort of um, supply a level of high quality ingredients that you don't always have from other stores. And so what I wanted to do in the book and I, and and then you know James Beard did did me the wonderful um uh, favor and also a huge pain of awarding them an America's Classic Award this year, which was so awesome. Except, you know, we had been pursuing the cookbook as sort of a project. You know, we knew it would be a long-term project, and um, Christine was very gracious and said, you know, take whatever time you need to do this. But then, as soon as they won the American mm-hmm. Classics Award, you know, everybody's asking me every day, like, when is the cookbook coming out? When is the cookbook coming out? And I'm writing as fast as I can. Um, but what I wanted to do was create something that showed not only the history of the place, but it's relevance in Brooklyn and New York City today. Because what I think is so cool about it, aside from the wonderful food there, is when you shop there, it is such a New York City experience. I mean, there's people from all walks of life, from all ages, from all ethnic groups who are just there united in their common mission of eating something delicious. And to me, like, that's world peace. You know, you have... um, politicians who I will not name, you know, on <laughs> on the television, in the White House, saying very provocative things, saying very disrespectful things to other people. And it's kind of the exact opposite of what Charlie Sahadi has always stood for. You know, he's not a political person at all, but he just loves human beings and he loves his community. So everybody is welcome there. They've always treated everybody with respect. And over the years, they've they've um, expanded their repertoire of ingredients for all the different ethnic groups that have come in. So, you know, you shop there and there's like a Hasidic man, there's like a Caribbean nurse, there's like a hipster dude with his man bun and he's wearing his baby on his front. You know, there's like every age, every interest and, you know, the food there appeals to everybody. And that's what Brooklyn love is, right? Like, that's why we live here, because we love food and we love people. Without a doubt. And that's shopping at Tahadis, as you said, is a very New York moment. And I love bringing people there from out of town and showing it off and saying this is, you know, part of what makes living in New York so incredible. And speaking of New York and other women who made New York as your book suggests (laughs) Um, we have to take a short break but we're going to come back and then really dive into your your brand new book women who made new york and there's a whole section which i found fascinating about grocers which christine is in Um, so sit back we'll be right back to talk about one of our favorite subjects women all right
following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Welcome back. This is a recommended reading with Food Book Fair. We are joined in the studio with journalist and author. Did I say joined in the studio? What did I say? Oh my gosh. David, help me. Um, Welcome back. You're (laughs) listening to Recommended Reading with Food Book Fair. We are joined in the studio by... Julie Scalfo, author and journalist, and we just had a great chat about Sahadi's, the Brooklyn grocer, and the fact that that Christine Sahadi Whalen and Julie are working on a Sahadi's book, which will have not only recipes but really the stories behind ingredients that they and products that they carry at Sahadi's and the story behind the Sahadi's family. So we will keep our eyes peeled for that. Can't wait for it to come back, but come out. No pressure, though. We know. <laughs> we know how much time it takes. Um, we're really excited to talk about Julie's book, The Women Who Made New York. Um, please, please, please check out this book. It really blew me away. Not only the women in the book, which we'll, we'll get into talking about how the book is structured, which I found um, really, really interesting. And I had never thought about people who were brought together in that way. Um, and also, there's some incredible illustrations um, done by a young woman, Haley Held. And I, I like I ordered the poster. Yeah, her illustrations, they're um, actually paintings that she did. They're so beautiful. And I love her ability to sort of (laughs) infuse this, you know, two-dimensional painting, right? One-dimensional. What is is flat on the paper? Is that one-dimensional? But they're they're so alive. You know, you get the spirit of these women. And actually, one of the women in the book, when she saw the painting... She said, well, that's an unusual. I don't know why you chose that photograph of me. I remember you telling me that, telling that story when you um, spoke about your book in Fair Harbor, Fire Island, one of my favorite places in New York, <laughs> as a woman of New York. Um, and that's such a, that's so crazy. I mean, they, they're, they're really so, so beautiful and really just make all of the women, whether they are not with us anymore or they are, seem so alive. And... Um, would love to hear a little bit about how the idea for this book came about. I know it was kind of brought to you and you were up for the challenge and then some, and then I want to read a little bit about from the book, how you narrowed down who would be in the book. Cause there's a lot of women out there. There's a lot of women who have contributed to New York's history. Um, yes, the idea originated with uh, the executive editor of Seal Press, Laura Mazur. She knew my work, and she wanted me to help 
sort of bring her vision to life. And she envisioned sort of, you know, a very beautiful, giftable, maybe coffee table book, we could call it, with illustrations by Hallie that defined and highlighted the contributions of women to New York City because there had never been anything like that. And when she brought the idea to me, I instantly fell in love with it and knew I had to do it. But I didn't appreciate how I would feel when I started researching it because, you know, when you look at most of the well-respected history books of New York City, um, almost all of them were written by men. When you go through their indices, there are so few women included. And it sort of defies logic, right? You know, where were the women? I mean, they were alive. <laughs> you know, so they were doing something. What were right. they doing? Right. And, and clearly what they were doing were things that we as a society or the people who wrote these books didn't really value. And I think that so much has to do with feminism and our historic sort of disregard for what we call women's work and, and the cooking and the cleaning and the caretaking. And yet, if you don't have those functions, if you don't have all members of a society contributing in some way, you don't have a functioning society. So when I began to sort of um, accumulate names and, and research and discover amazing women who had made some contribution to the city, I, I, I looked and thought quite a bit about how to narrow down who would be featured. Right. And any way I did it and tried to make the, the list so small, like just 25 women, didn't sit well with me because we were committing the same error of fact in, in leaving out so many people. So I finally had to decide on sort of, you know, at a minimum, who would I include? You know, <laughs> right. and these were all... And as I explained in the introduction, you know, these were all women who made what New York City is to me. And everybody else probably has a different perspective. But Right. And that, you know, the title made me think of the expression, like, you've made it and, you know, what that means. And, and I really loved putting women who made it together and understand, you know, really thinking about the fact that these women made New York what that is and, and making New York could be different things to different people. But I know what it is, you know, for myself. And I, I really loved that title because I really feel like we just wouldn't be where we are without these women, you well, know, the, in the, New York. Well, that was the criteria to be in the book, you know, without right. them, New York city would not be the same place. Right. And so mm -hmm. that's, that was the final criteria of who to include. Right. I'm just going to read one or two lines from the introduction to the book that really, helped me to understand your process and um, even appreciate who was in the book even more. So you say, I opted against identifying firsts. Rather, I selected women without whom an important part of New York would not exist, or at least not be the same. While someone like Chan, referring to Agnes Chan, the city's first female Asian American police officer, broke an important barrier and undoubtedly deserves our gratitude, the NYPD was up and running long before she got there. So, hey, she got, her, she got a great shout-out. <laughs> um, but that really, as I started to delve into the book even further, going back to the introduction, really helped me understand your process and, and who you chose to be in the book and be featured. And as I, I, I say in the book, you know, this, this list is incomplete. There's no way the list could ever be complete, in part because they needed it published at a certain time, <laughs> and in also part because so many 
stories and so many women have been lost to history because we didn't record their names and we didn't include them, you know, to use our modern um, political way of talking about things. We didn't privilege their stories. And so we don't we weren't taught them. We didn't learn about them and they weren't recorded. But at the same time, it also isn't that hard to find out about these. I mean, some of the women in the book um, took a lot of work to uncover and loads of work to find information on. But others were right there, you know, in broad daylight. I mean, one example in uh, one of the chapters, I think, on restaurants or the in crowd, I can't remember where she landed, but there's the story of Jenny Sardi from Sardi's Restaurant. And, you know, her husband is the one that everybody thinks of when you talk about Sardi's uh, Restaurant. Um, And, you know, when I was doing some research, you know, I learned about how important she was. And you go back and you get her husband's biography and he makes it very clear. I mean, he's he's explicit about this over and over again, how it was their restaurant. It was their idea. They found the place together. They um, decorated it together. Jenny's the one who made the menu. Jenny did the cooking. Jenny did the shopping. Jenny did the hiring. You know, Jenny did the training. And then they they worked together. You know, he worked the door and she worked the register and they did this for years and years and years. And yet the restaurant was Sardi apostrophe S. Why couldn't it have been Sardi's apostrophe? That just wasn't how it was done. It was a patriarchal culture. It was the custom to sort of associate the business with the man. Um, and so he wasn't arguing. Um, you know, it was kind of like earlier this year, there was this amazing moment where I think it's the National Songwriters Association awarded, um, re- reverse awarded songwriting credit to the song Imagine to Yoko Ono. And when they introduced us, there was a pause. And then the head of the organization says, well, we're going to let John Lennon explain it to you himself. And they play this video. Did you see this? No. You have to look this oh, up. Oh, wow. So, okay. so there was a video, an interview with John Lennon where he said, you know, I guess I have to admit that he said, really, Yoko's name belongs there as the co-writer of this song. And, and I have to admit, you know, when I was younger, I was kind of macho. And if she hadn't been my wife, she would have had the song credit. But because she was my wife, I kind of didn't give her credit. But really, it was her idea. And it was so powerful to, to see this person who we all sort of know and admire acknowledge his own um, you know, flaws of thinking, but also correct them. And it was such a beautiful, powerful thing to see her finally get credit. And I think that's why this book has resonated with people, because when you read about what these women did, and also when you see women of all different backgrounds and walks of life and economic levels and, you know, hair colors, you you get this like good feeling, you know, everybody contributes in a different way and everybody is part of the story. I loved the chapter on the grocers. I'm just looking at that right now. And I I know Christine is in there. Um, And as a New Yorker, I remember going one, well, I remember going to Zabar's and I, but I really remember going to Balducci's. Everybody remembers going to Balducci's. And, you know, in my interviews with Charlie Sahadi, he loved Balducci's. He loved to take people in there. He thought that they did such a beautiful job 
of showing you what food can be and what a market can be. They were always the benchmark to his mind. Um, Balducci suffered sort of this terrible family feud and it got pretty public. And so that was a great loss to the city. And, you know, another reason why I think the Sahadi story is so remarkable, because somehow, you know, after four generations, I mean, it's not easy to work with a family member. You know, another, you were asking me what I'm watching, what I'm reading. I, I can't wait to see The House of Z. It's like a little documentary that's available now about Zach Posey and his family and sort of what it took for their family to create this brand together. And, um, you know, it's really difficult to work with anybody, never mind someone in your own family. And yet the Sahadi's family has figured out how to um, do this and balance sort of the collective need of the organization and the family and the individual needs all having different roles inside the company. So um, the Balducci's are in here. The Rust daughters are in here. Um Lillian Zabar. Yeah, and then you have another section called the Tastemakers. And this one highlights some of of my favorite people, a lot of them uh, in food media. So I I love the title. And, um, you know, Mimi Sheridan is in here, which people know, Gail Green. um, Well, you know, and and Florence Fabricant should be in here, too. I mean, I just, it was so difficult to to narrow down who to include. And, um, you know, I included um, Mimi and Ruth. And, you know, most of these women are very familiar to people who are interested in food in New York. But you can't sort of... Um, overstate how different the food landscape was in America just 25, 30 years ago. You know, olive oil was still sort of an ethnic ingredient and found, you know, uh, in a particular aisle, wasn't always kept with all the other, you know, regular cooking oils. Um, You know, it's, it's amazing how this country has transformed. Yeah, I mean, sure, people know someone like Mimi Chardin. I mean, she's, you know, she's written a lot. She's spoken a lot about the work that she's done, but it's, it's great that she is even more in the spotlight now. And, and she was because she was one of the people that helped create the four seasons, the original four seasons. And there was a lot written about her contributions to that in, because the four seasons being remade. Um, so I just ran into Mimi. She's on the top of my mind because I just ran into her at the green market. And I sometimes see their, her there on Saturday mornings. And she's always dressed so beautifully and wearing her green market you know, hat. And, I, and when I saw her last week, I was just thinking like, wow, what an amazing life you have lived and have seen and you're going to get to continue to see. Yeah, there's so many people, you know, as, as I have... Um, you know, you were asking me earlier about yeah. social media, yes. you know, um, I, I've utilized social media to try and promote the book as best I'm able, but also to promote the values that the book stands for. And there are other women who help make New York. And so I'm delighted when I have opportunities to give them a shout out and help raise awareness of them or their work to a wider audience. And also, I really love um, celebrating. I, I have this new hashtag I just do sometimes called Women Who Make New York. And that's for when I see young women who are doing things today that I think are making New York today and shaping the political landscape, the activism, the art. You know, it's it's um, it's important to see that this is an ongoing process, you know. Um, but when I drew attention to women like Mimi, who sort of had a very clear and established identity in the landscape of playing 
a role in one facet of New York life. In that case, it was sort of dining out and restaurant and restaurant culture. You know, it was a difficult decision to figure out which women from restaurants to include. But ultimately, I included Louisa Leone, who was the woman behind Mama Leone's restaurant. And, you know, in the later years of its life, its food wasn't really considered as... Um, tasty, you know, or as refined as many other Italian um, restaurants in New York. But what amazed me, what, and I included this in here, was how um, it had become uh, so successful as a theater district restaurant that in 1959 it was acquired by Restaurant Associates. Um, which changed its name to Mama Leone. And then it, it made so much money that that's the money restaurant associates used to bankroll their opening of the Four Seasons, of Tavern on the Green, you know, all of these other major iconic New York City places. So sort of the, the wealth and the investment that made all those other things possible was because of this woman's cooking. I mean, the mm. whole thing started because her husband sold wine. And, you know, he asked her to have make dinner parties when his clients were in town. And Enrico Caruso came one night, tasted her cooking, was like, oh, my God, you should have a restaurant. And her husband said no. And then Enrico talked him into, quote, unquote, allowing her to open this restaurant. And that's that's how it all started. So, you know, in the history books, you read about restaurant associates and you read about the money involved. But, you know, her creating this meal, you know, and, and good food, you know, has love in it. It has that sort of magic thing that makes you gratified and nourishes your soul when you eat it as as well as your belly. You know, she had that gift and she's the one without whom all those other things wouldn't have happened. I I can't wait to reread that story. <laughs> I hope you do. <laughs> well, that's, you know, it, it, it's not a book that you have to read straight through. So the idea was you can pop in and out of it and read different sections. So, Okay, well, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit as we have to end soon. Um, although it seems like we could talk really about this forever. And clearly you've done some incredible and extensive research on women and New York. So thank you for that. My pleasure, truly. Is there, as you, you mentioned, your more current hashtag that you've been using, women making New York. Is there someone that's been doing something top of mind that you want to talk about quickly that you use that hashtag for or in association with? Yeah, you know, um, I don't think I've posted about this yet, but I was going to post something about um, Jesse Paris-Smith and Rebecca Foon. Um, and these two women together have created something called Pathway to Paris. And earlier this year, um, America's president announced that we would pull out of the Paris Agreement, which was this sort of remarkable coming together of many different countries to help collectively lower our greenhouse gas emissions in order to fight global warming. And when the president said this, these two women were like, wait a minute, you know, 
the cities can still achieve these goals. And um, Jesse's a musician, Rebecca's a cellist, um, and Jesse's also the daughter of Patti Smith, and so she knows a lot of people in the industry. And she's been able to organize these concerts, and there's a concert coming up at Carnegie Hall to raise money for Pathway to Paris. And they're working to get all of these different cities to individually sign on to um, improving their standards and lowering greenhouse gas emissions and all these other things. And so, you know, she's out there actually doing the work of making the change. So that's someone I see as the type of woman who is making New York City today. You know, it's the, throughout the city's history, it, it's women who have said, you know what, it's um, unjust to treat people differently because of their sexual preference, or it's unjust to deny women access to health care or information about their bodies. And, and they fought for it. You know, they made the change. And so, um, I, it, you know, that's one, that's one person, you know. I mean, there's a million. I, you know, Jean Shin is someone I've never met, but I've been seeing her work. She had an amazing installation at Pioneer Works. I'm dying to get over there. I don't know if it's closed up already. So many people. It's a great city, you know. There's always something new. Always. <laughs> always. Well, Julie, thank you so much for being on our show today, Recommended Reading. We talked a lot about what we've been, we've been reading. We talked a lot about your book. And I can't wait to get a look at the Sahadi's book when it comes out. Me too. Well, I think Sahadi's, um, I'm so excited because they've begun doing, you know, more social media and allowing a, a video crew that I introduced them to to come in and sort of shoot some of the things going on in the kitchen at the factory. So I think you'll get to see some of those videos. And, and the James Beard folks did an yeah. amazing sort of tribute to them. So uh, it's all good. <laughs> Yeah, can't wait to uh, tap into my Sahadi's hummus when I get home. I know. Because it's just always usually chilling in my fridge. Yeah. It's I've the a, best. I have a dark chocolate almond obsession, but it's all good. It's all good. Amanda, thanks for having me. It was fun. Oh my gosh, Julie, thank you so much for joining us. This is Recommended Reading with Food Book Fair. And thank you to Heritage Radio Network, our, our home away from home, and to David Tadishore, our engineer. Couldn't do it without you. Thank you, and we'll uh, see you on the airwaves next time. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Recommended reading is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. 
If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage.